Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started during the work from home period to replicate the experience that we provide at our global conference series, the SALT Conference. And really what we're trying to do is to provide a window into the minds of subject matter experts for our audience, as well as provide a platform for leading investors, creators, and thinkers to talk about some ideas that we think are really shaping the future. And our guest today is someone who has uh, had a big part in shaping the future of the Republican Party uh, for the last 30 years. And the picture uh, that, that he now paints of the party is, is a fairly dire picture. And that guest today is Stuart Stevens. Uh, Stuart is the author of seven books, and his work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Esquire, and Outside, among many other publications. Uh, he has written extensively for several television shows, including Northern Exposure, Commander-in-Chief, and K Street. Uh, for 25 years, he was the lead strategist and media consultant for some of the nation's toughest political campaigns. Uh, he attended Colorado College, Pembroke College in Oxford, uh, Middlebury College, and UCLA Film School, and he's a former fellow of the American Film Institute. He's also a member of the Lincoln Project, a group of uh, Republicans who have been involved in the party for many years who have decided uh, to work to elect Joe Biden in this uh, election as a result of, of what they view as some flaws within uh, our current president, President Trump. Just a reminder, if you have any questions for Stuart during today's SALT talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And uh, in addition, Stuart uh, is out with a recent book called It Was All a Lie that recaps some of what I just spoke about, some of his uh, concerns about the future of the Republican Party. So we're very excited to talk about that book as well. And I think Anthony has it in front of him. And conducting today's interview is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. He's also uh, had a few stints in politics as well. He's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. So Stuart, look at that. I'm holding up the book. See that, Stuart? And I've got I've got the pages dog-eared. It is great to have you on. Thanks. You'll get a uh, and, note from my mom. Thanks. And, Appreciate and it. You're, uh, and you're beaming in from where I actually met you. I don't know if you would remember this, but you're, you're in right. Park City. Yeah. And I met you in 2012 at that big Romney conclave. Right. And then ultimately, we continued on with Governor Romney uh, doing that every year. Uh, and that was an interesting time, obviously, because that was June of 2012, as we were heading into the Republican convention. And eight years has made a big difference in Republican Party politics, Stuart. So, but, but before we go to the book, I want you to tell us a little bit about what it was like to grow up in Jackson, Mississippi, and how you got your career arc headed towards politics. Yeah, you know, um, Anthony, I grew up uh, in the bad old days in Mississippi, kind of the Mississippi burning days. Um, and my parents, uh, the big question then people would ask is, are you good on race or bad on race? And my parents were kind of classic political moderates, but they were good on race and they uh, were involved in trying to support civil rights efforts. Um, there was a guy named William Winter who ran for governor in 1967 and he had gone to Ole Miss with my parents, um, actually dated my mom for a while, which is still a source of... Uh, some amusement. Um, and he was running against the last avowed uh, segregationist uh, named John Bell Williams. And my parents were involved in that campaign. And I got involved in the way you do when you're like, I don't know, 13 years old. You know, I walk precincts. I did those things. Um, 
And it was a very dramatic campaign. Winter was getting a lot of death threats because he was uh, against segregation. Uh, and I just found it incredibly compelling. And I thought, if this is politics, like what else could be more interesting? Um, you know, at the time, uh, pretty much everybody in Mississippi were Democrats and, and the dominant political figures were, were Jim Eastland, big Jim Eastland as he was called, uh, the Senator and John Stennis, um, both for segregationists. John Stennis was more genteel version of segregationist, but he was a segregationist. Um, I got involved, uh, it was a young sort of classic uh, uh, Rotarian type do-good uh, Republican lawyer who ran for Congress in his early 30s named Thad Cochran. Um, and he ran as an alternative uh, to that segregationist establishment. Uh, and I worked in his campaigns. I was actually a page in his office when I was in high school. Um, and that's really how I ended up being a Republican. You know, at the time, we didn't really know what Republicans were, um, but we didn't want to be like Stennis and Eastland, unless, you know, you wanted to be a judge in like Yalabusha County or something. Um, so uh, that's the path I started on. And I, I just continued it um, until recently. So this book is extraordinary. Uh, I'm a lifelong Republican. Uh, I became a Republican in 1982. Uh, my dad was in a union. Actually, David Axelrod got this right. Uh, he said to me, well, your dad was a laborer in Nassau County. I said, yes. So, so Joe Margiata controlled that union. I don't right. remember Joe Margiata. I remember Joe Margiata very well, yeah. And, and so when I went to the post office, I turned to my pops. I said, am I a Democrat or a Republican? He says, oh, no, you're a Republican. So, so there I was, a Republican. I filled out the voter card. And then I learned about Ronald Reagan and obviously fell in love with him. And I've been a lifelong Republican. But you write a book about the Republican Party. And it's not really about Donald Trump, which I found interesting about the book. It is more about the system that percolated to create mm -hmm. Donald Trump. And I was wondering if you could take us through that, uh, uh, that synthesized that for us, if you don't mind. Yeah, you know, Anthony, in 2016, a lot of people were wrong about Donald Trump, but it's hard to find anybody who was more wrong than me. Uh, I didn't think he'd win the primary. Uh, I famously said he wouldn't win a primary. Um, I kind of said that to be provocative, but um, I did think he wouldn't win the nomination. And I didn't think he'd win the general election. Um, and after he won, I went through a period like a lot of my friends, uh, kind of the side of the party I was on, saying Donald Trump's not really a Republican. Um, and I don't really know how to sustain that. I mean, he's head of the Republican Party. The Republican Party is the party that endorsed Roy Moore and attacks John Bolton. Um, so I started asking myself, like, how did this happen? And really, this book began as just a personal exploration of that in that old, you know, high school English teacher way that if you can't write something, you don't understand it. Um, so that's why I started on this path that led to the book. It really didn't begin as a book project. It began more as sort of a personal reflection. Um, and it was fascinating because when you look at the history of the Republican Party and, you know, one of the great things about writing this book was uh, getting a chance, sort of a, a good excuse to read a lot of books about the Republican Party. And it's not an obscure subject and there's tremendous work that's been done. But you can really trace uh, in the post-World War II party to two factions. It was sort of an Eisenhower governing, uh, boring, but, but sane faction, and then Joe McCarthy. Uh, and those trends really continued. Um, and, you know, I was very involved in uh, Governor Bush's campaign for president. I moved down to Austin in April of 99. Um, and at the time, you could say that conservatism and Republicans were sort of a victim of our own success. 
Um, the Cold War was over and I guess we won it. Uh, welfare had been a big issue with Republicans, but then Bill Clinton ran on ending welfare as we know it. Crime was a big issue, but crime was going down as it's continued to. Uh, taxes were no longer at 70%. So I think Governor Bush asked himself sort of, what is it to be a conservative in this modern era? Um, and out of that grew compassionate conservatism. And I was very drawn to that. And uh, I think that most of us involved in that thought that we were on, as it were, the right side of history, that there was an inevitability, if only because of the changing country, that we were the ones of a more inclusive party. You know, we used to talk about a big tent party a lot. Um, so I, I saw our side as the dominant gene and the other side, call it, I'd call it the dark side, the regressive gene. Um, but I, I have to say, I think I was wrong. Uh, I think we were the regressive gene. I, I tell you, Anthony, if you go back and you read uh, George Bush's acceptance speech at the 2000 uh, Republican convention in your hometown, New York, I, I mean, it reads like something, like a lost document from a civilization, like the Mayans or something. I mean, it's, it's all about compassion and service and humility. I mean, that message couldn't win 20% in the Republican primary now. So it's so, extraordinary. So why, why, is, why is that, Stuart? What, 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 what is it? And obviously you write in your book, I just want to point out that the Democrats started out as the segregationists, as you're referencing yep. in the book, yep. and then all of a sudden we're gravitating towards Republican racial division and xenophobia. And so now we're here where we are now. So why is that? Because it it doesn't make sense for the expansion of the tent of that party to no. me, but you know, I'm obviously not, I'm not in the, in the vein of the party where, you know, the leadership so is. Now. So, 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 so why is that? It's a, it's a profound question. And, and honestly, even after writing this book, I, I can't say that I've nailed an answer. Um, you know, one of the conclusions I came to, which seems sort of obvious, uh, is that leaders really matter. Uh, I, I, I think that the country and people can be led in different directions. If you go back to the 30s, there was a huge fascist movement in America, uh, but we didn't become fascist like a lot of countries in Europe did. Why? Probably because Roosevelt was president and not, say, Lindbergh, who was part of the American First uh, movement. Uh, had Lindbergh been president, we would have been the same country, but we would have gone in a different direction. I mean, why was the civil rights movement largely nonviolent? Probably because Martin Luther King. And if Stokely Carmichael had been head of that, it would have been a much more confrontational, probably violent uh, movement. So I, I think that Donald Trump, I mean, you know him far better than I, Anthony, I think he analyzed the Republican Party and said that if I give them power, um, they will uh, not fight me on these values that they've always said that they stood for. Um, very transactional. And uh, I, I think that a lot of it, I look at the people I helped elect, a, a lot of them, and, you know, I don't, I, I don't, in this book, I didn't want it to be one where I settle scores or name names. Uh, I just really wanted to kind of accept personal responsibility and blame myself. But I just don't get it. Because um, I know these people, and they're good people. And if you live next door to them, they'd be great neighbors. They saw you on the road, stranded, they'd stop in a heartbeat. And yet they support Donald Trump. Um, it's... It's really something that uh, that baffles me. Um, well, let me, let me know, play devil's as, advocate for yeah, a second. Please. So let me let me play devil's advocate. Let me say that the country's in a great culture war. 
my culture, uh, my conservatism, my right to bear arms, my individualism, whatever I've been taught in the Bible, I want to preserve. I only have two people standing for election at any one time. And even though the president has some personality corpse mm -hmm. and personality issues, I believe that he is the savior of our civilization relative to the other person. And by the way, that came from a wickedly smart guy into my text, into, into my phone last night. That, that exact verbiage. This is a guy that I went to Harvard Law School with who's a, a staunch, quote unquote, Trump supporter. And your response to that is? Uh, my response is that uh, we used to say, if you only stand for re-election, you don't stand for anything. Um, I think that when we said back in the Clinton era that culture is the soul of the country, that it is greater than any single issue, I think we were right. I mean, when you read the beautiful stuff that William Bennett wrote. Um, and I think that what's happened now is that conservatism is being destroyed. What was conservatism? And to my view, 90% of us would have agreed on a set of principles, personal responsibility, character counts, um, free trade. Uh, strong on Russia, the deficit matters, uh, very pro-legal immigration. I mean, Ronald Reagan announced in front of the Statue of Liberty, signed a bill that made everyone before 1983 legal. Um, and it's not just that we're drifted away from those, we're actively against those parties. So to me, uh, there is a role to play. You have to stand for your principles. And if it means you lose a race, you lose a race, but you don't lose your soul and you don't lose the definition of what you believe in. And I think the long-term damage to conservatism by this sort of Faustian bargain that was struck with Trump is devastating. And you can see it in numbers, how many young people are being attracted to what we would call conservatism. They're really not. And it's, it's sort of an incoherent political philosophy now, um, which I think is gonna probably push us toward a, a center left period of government for a while. I mean, say what you will about Elizabeth Warren, she can articulate a theory of government. You can like it, you can hate it, uh, but she can argue with you. I, I really don't know what the Republican Party stands for now, except beating Democrats. Well, um, I mean, listen, there's no there's no uh, Republican Party platform post convention, no. so that's more evidence of it. You discuss in the book the hypo hypocrisy of family values. You basically are saying that it was the bedrock of the Republican GOP culture war but they're quite hypocritical. How are they hypocritical? Look, I, I think that, um, well, first, you know, it's, it, you always get into dangerous ground when you start generalizing about large groups of people. Um, and I think there are a lot of people who are genuine. Um, but in the, in the larger sense, um, this idea that the party would stand for these certain values, I think has just been proven to be false. I, I don't know how you, um, can reconcile supporting someone like Donald Trump uh, with pretending that role models matter, uh, pretending that character counts. I mean, everything that we're taught from our parents, our coaches, our teachers, our scout leaders, our people we work with, our bosses, uh, that all these things matter. So I, I just, I don't think you can reconcile that. And there's always been this strange history, particularly in the evangelical white movement of these sort of larger than life fraudulent figures like Jimmy Schweikert. And I see Donald Trump as one of those. They even weirdly sort of look alike. They all have these kind of larger than life presences and they're all kind of like 
manufactured and, and you know, they look phony. Um, and I, I think, you know, if, if the heart of family values to me is being a good neighbor, sort of fundamental, what we would call Christian values, though they're not only held in the Christian religion, um, of, of kindness, of compassion, of helping others. And I think what Trump does is, I mean, we all have a side within us that feels aggrieved, that feels like, well, I didn't get a good shot here, that uh, an angry side. And Trump validates that. I mean, he tells us that's our best side. That that little spurt of adrenaline you feel like when someone cuts you off in traffic, that little moment of road rage, that's your best self. And if you let that person cut you off, you're a sucker, you're a loser, not just to say, okay, it doesn't matter. Um, and I think that's very toxic to a culture. Uh, and, and the long-term effects of that are very dangerous. And I think you see it with racial presence. Not that Trump made people racist. I just think he made it more socially acceptable to acknowledge this and to embrace it. So all, all of this stuff you write in this brilliant book, I just want to hold the book up again for everybody to see it. Uh, it was all a lie. Uh, you're saying something in the book that I think is fascinating, and I'll, I'll give an editorial tip here. I believe it's true. You and I are in agreement on this. The, the, one of the central points of your book is that Trump is an outcome of, of multiple decades of behavior that led to Trump. And so resulted with, if Trump is removed on November the 3rd, there is still a systemic problem with the Republican yes. Party. And so can you elaborate a little bit on that? What is yeah. that problem and how could you fix that problem? Let's say you were the czar of the Republican Party or the czar of that 35% that continues to vote for Mr. Trump. How would you fix it? Well, you know, I really think this all goes back to race. I mean, in, in 1956, Dwight Eisenhower got almost 40% of the African-American vote, which is extraordinary to think about now. In 64, with Goldwater, when he opposed the Civil Rights Act, it dropped to 7%. Now, you could have made a case, I probably would have made a case in 64, that after the Civil Rights Act passed, that a large number of African-Americans would be drawn back to the Republican Party because of shared interest, faith in the public square, uh, basic family values, patriotism, entrepreneurship, but it didn't happen. I mean, Goldwater got 7%, Donald Trump got somewhere between 7 and 8%. Uh, you know, at that rate, we'll be doing better with African-Americans about 30, 50. Um, and I think that like any business, uh, when you spend, uh, when you realize that, you know, 90 plus percent of your market is one share, you get very good at talking to that share and not very good at talking to the other. And we used to acknowledge the failure of the Republican Party to attract African-Americans and other non-white vote. Um, we talked about a big tent party and we, we tried to address that. Now, we weren't very successful, though with Hispanics in, in the Bush campaign, we were more successful. But I, I think it matters that we acknowledge that it was a failure, because I think the first step to change anything is to acknowledge it's a failure. I mean, Ken Melman in, uh, what was it, uh, 2005, went before the chairman of the Republican Party, went before the NAACP and apologized for the Nixon Southern strategy, which tried to divide African Americans from the Democratic Party. Um, I just think that, that that's an important step. And the country is changing so rapidly now. I'll tell you a stat that I saw that just blew my mind, Anthony. Of Americans 15 years and under, the majority are non-white. I mean, odds are really good they're going to be 18 and still non-white. And what does that mean for the Republican Party that is increasingly uh, a white party? 
I think it's just a, a death sentence unless the party changes. And right now the party shows no desire to change. Um, on this Trumpism, you know, there is this kind of other Republican party, governors. So look at, look at Phil Scott in Vermont, uh, Hogan in Maryland, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. I mean, I work for all these guys, I love them. And they're, they're wildly successful in very tough markets for Republicans. And yet, even as successful and popular as they are, they can't choose their own state party chairman. They're Trump people. I mean, to those of us who work in politics, I mean, that's like a coach can't put in the player they want. I mean, it's like, right. And I think it just shows how deep Trumpism has become embedded in the party. Um, and I don't think it's going to change until uh, it's seen as a political necessity to change. Uh, I've, I've really given up to being something that line that Trump would cross that Republicans would rise up and oppose him on principle. Do you think there is a potential rise up of a center right movement, center right party to challenge Republicanism or Trumpism as you're describing it? Yeah, you know, when I look at this, I really see that there are three parties in America. There's a Republican party and then there's really two parties inside the Democratic party. I mean, there's a Joe Biden wing, call it, and then there's the, the AOC, Bernie Sanders wing. And I, I think you're seeing a lot of people who 20 years ago would have run as moderate Republicans running as moderate Democrats now. Uh, look at Connor Lamb in, in Pennsylvania. He was a classic guy. I mean, when I worked for Tom Ridge, who just came out for Biden, he's the last Republican governor reelected in Pennsylvania. Those are people who would have been comfortable in the party then, but now they're not. Um, and to me, when you look at the future of the country in a public policy sense, it's really going to be largely determined by that battle within the Democratic Party. Uh, which side is going to emerge dominant? Um, you know, if you take national health insurance, I mean, in 20 years, I don't know, even 10 years, are we really going to be the only Western country that doesn't have national health insurance? It's hard to imagine. And what that's going to be, I think, will be determined by that fight inside the Democratic Party. Um, and Republicans, I, I, I'm afraid what's going to happen nationally is what happened to the Republican Party in California. I mean, it wasn't long ago, California was the beating heart of the Republican Party, the electoral citadel. And now it's in third place. Third. And it's really, it's hard to find a big public policy issue that Republicans in California have much say in. Um, and I, I just find that tragic. I think it's bad for California. I think it's bad for conservatism. Uh, I think we need two strong parties. Um, but we're not going to get there with a culture war. I mean, uh, look, my home state of Mississippi, right? I mean, we finally took down the Mississippi state flag, which was basically the Confederate battle flag, you know, a few months ago. It was very moving to a lot of us. Um, and that same week, Donald Trump got in a fight with NASCAR because NASCAR was banning the Confederate flag from events. So, like, I mean, really? We're on the wrong side of a cultural issue with... NASCAR? I mean, how is that even imaginable? And we're in a war with, with Walmart, a cultural war over masks, because Walmart insists you use masks. So somehow in 2020, Republicans have ended up on the wrong side of a cultural war of Walmart and NASCAR. And man, I just don't think that bodes well for the future. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you one more question. We're going to turn it over to John for some questions, and I'm going to wrap up at the end. But this is, uh, I want to take you back to 2012. The Republican Party uh, commissioned right. a study. You're yep. well familiar with it. You contributed to that study. You also referenced a lot of these elements in the book. 
uh, about opening the tent and making yeah. the party more demographically acceptable income strata and and making the party frankly more competitive now obviously president trump went in the other direction he's uh, selling the party to people that are buying uh my pillows and catheters on fox news during commercial breaks that's what he's decided to do with the party but you wanted to go in a different direction with oh. the party tell us a little bit about that direction and then also is that even possible today or have we reached a point of impossibility and then I'll well, turn it over to John. You know, I think what's really striking about that so-called autopsy, and Rice Priebus, I think, deserves a lot of credit for commissioning that because it's always hard for any organization to be self-critical. Um, it was, the conclusions were pretty obvious. You know, we needed to appeal to more non-whites. We needed to appeal to younger voters. We needed to appeal to more women, particularly single women. Um, and they were presented not just as a political necessity, but as a moral mandate that if we were going to earn the right to govern this big, confusing, changing, uh, loud country, that we needed to represent it more, be more like it. And then Trump came along and it was like, okay, great. We can just win with white people. Terrific. We don't have to pretend we care about all this stuff. And I think it's just tragic. Um, and, and to me, the turning point is when Trump came out in December of 2015 for a Muslim ban. Uh, it's, it's unconstitutional, it's a religious test. And if Republicans stand for anything, it's constitutionality and a belief in the constitution. And I just think the party then missed an opportunity to come forward and say, look, uh, we don't support Donald Trump. Now we can't tell him not to run, we can't tell you not to vote for him, but this isn't who the Republican party is. And if Donald Trump's a nominee and supports a Muslim ban, we can't support him because it's against the constitution. Now, what would have happened? I have no idea. But I think the Republican Party would be in a lot better place now. Um, and it's, you know, for years we criticized Democrats. But, for being, but, but Stuart, not to interrupt, is that the leadership of one man or is that the whole system that you're describing here in the book? I, I think it's both. You know, in 2012, uh, when a Republican Missouri uh, nominee for the Senate Todd Aiken said horrible things about women and rape. Reince Peepers came out and said, look, we're not gonna support this. No one Republican party that I'm involved in is gonna give this guy money or, or work for him. It probably cost us a Senate seat, but we won something more valuable. Uh, I think uh, Chairman Priebus should have done that then. Now at the time, nobody thought Donald Trump was gonna win. And I think that they, you know, Trump was also out there trying to leverage the fact that he might run as a third party and they didn't want to alienate Trump. So I understand the reasons. I just think it's a, it's a it's classic example of how when you negotiate with your basic values, you always end up losing. You know, it, it, it's that Faust, and what people forget about Faust is not only does Mephistopheles take your soul, but he doesn't deliver. And I think that's what's happened with Trump. Uh, we have the worst deficit in, in history. Uh, it's gone up faster under Trump. Um, we're kind of to the left of Bernie Sanders on trade, as far as I can tell. I mean, Sanders went to Russia, but he didn't marry Putin. Um, I just don't, I don't get it. Uh, and I, I think that all of that is going to come back to haunt us for a long time to come. All right, let me turn it over to John. John was, uh, is from uh, North Carolina, so he had the snicker going over the whole NASCAR thing. I don't know if you caught that facial expression from John Darcy, but go ahead, John. No, I've said the same thing, you know, growing up in the heart of NASCAR country, the idea that you're going to 
get into a battle with NASCAR and you're going to label NASCAR as too liberal, it just uh, you know, defies all sense of imagination. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think Donald Trump is where the country is. Uh, I mean, that's a perfect example. Another is when he talks about trying to frighten suburban housewives. Now, first of all, I don't know about you, but I know a lot of women that live in the suburbs. I don't know any that refer to themselves as suburban housewives. <laughs> I mean, most of them are working three or four jobs and, you know, have very complicated, busy lives. Uh, and, and I don't know anybody that wouldn't want their children to look at them as someone who would welcome a neighbor if they were of a different ethnicity or different religion. They don't want to be that person. Um, and there's nothing in our culture that encourages that except the septic pools on the internet. I mean, there's nothing in our music culture, our popular culture, uh, that supports racism. I mean, look at the whole kneeling thing. You know, D Donald Trump uh, out there when he was campaigning for Roy Moore saying, you know, uh, those that kneel, which are primarily African-Americans, you know, get those sons of bitches off the field. So how'd that work out? I mean, now we have, you know, entire baseball teams not playing. Um, we have, uh, you know, it, it, before the Ole Miss Florida game, all the players kneeled. I mean, you know, not since Stalingrad has anybody lost a battle like that. Um, and I think it just shows how out of touch Trump is with where the country's going. And again, you know, one of my favorite clients and dear friends is Haley Barber of Mississippi. And Haley had this saying, he goes, you know, man, be for the future. It's gonna happen anyway. And I just think that's a lesson Republicans seem to have forgotten. I like that a lot. So that's yeah, a great one. You know, you have a lot of you've worked with so many high profile Republican candidates, both, you know, people like Bob Dole, George Bush, uh, Mitt Romney. But you've also worked with some people who are in power right now. You talked about some of the governors you've worked with who have spoken out. Uh, you know, somewhat against Trump, you, but you've also worked for people who are part of this coalition within the GOP that has enabled him, if yep. you will, and has not stood up to the values that they, in private, talk about how they, you know, they don't like some of the rhetoric, they don't like some of the policy. And I've sat at dinners with Anthony, and I'm not going to name names here because I don't think right. it's appropriate, but at dinners with very high profile Republicans who say something very different than what they say in public, because they think it's politically expedient to say that other thing in public. Why do you think there is such a large cohort of Republicans who are allowing this to happen? It's not just policy issues, it's an erosion of some you know, democratic institutions. The, we're talking about um, delegitimizing our electoral process you know, without any evidence of it. Why do you think they're not standing up to you know, Trumpism and some of the things that he stands for? Brother, I ask myself this question about 50 times a day and I still don't have the answer. Um, you know, what really, really offends me about it is these politicians are heir to the greatest generation. I mean, people like my dad, you know, spent three years in the South Pacific, 28 island landings, came back, never really talked about it. My uncle, his brother, who was machine gun deep in Europe and never really recovered. That, that's the legacy they have. And courage isn't standing up to Donald Trump. Courage is getting out of the boat when the guy in front of you got shot. And that's the legacy they have. So I just don't understand it on multiple levels. I mean, I get it if you're working on the Hill and you've got a family and the jobs are hard to come by and the person supports Trump, okay. Eat the queen's bread, fight the queen's war. But you know, these senators particularly, they're all gonna be fine financially. They're not under any pressure. 
And what really baffles me is, I mean, most politicians have pretty big egos, which doesn't bother me in the least. So do great musicians, athletes, God knows writers do. But why don't they see like how they're going to be remembered? I mean, I, I use the example of George Wallace. I mean, George Wallace actually did some good stuff as governor. He passed free textbooks, at least for white students. But nobody's remembered as the free textbook George Wallace guy. You are the George Wallace guy. And I think that's how it's going to be for Trump. No one's going to be remembered as the, I want to lower marginal tax rates for corporations Trump guy. You're going to be the Trump guy. Um, and I don't see it. I don't understand it. I don't understand why even by sheer ego, they would not understand how much more they would be respected uh, and, and admired, um, what their kids and grandkids would think of them, um, if, if they stood up to Trump. It's, it's absolutely baffling to me. Um, what about the devil's that, advocate? What about the devil's advocate who says, well, you know, we elected Trump on the Supreme Court issue. We thought there was a possibility of openings coming into the Supreme Court that came to pass. And now we've flipped the balance of the court into a more conservative uh, position. And that was worth all the other noise. All of this erosion of democratic institutions, that will pass, you know, all the bad stuff will go away when we have another candidate leading the party. But now we have, you know, a conservative court for 40 years. Is it worth it? I, I don't, I don't buy that. I don't buy the idea that we have to attack democratic norms to preserve democratic norms. I mean, to me, it's burning the village to save it, which only ends in ashes. Um, I, I don't, I don't see that. Um, and, and look, a perfect example is 1964. How'd that work out? We opposed the civil rights bill. And what's happened? We lost a huge part of the country uh, and lost something of our soul. So I don't think that you can undo these things. I think that, that when this is a, a moment of testing, I mean, most of us, certainly, I don't go through life looking for moral crisis. I go through life trying to avoid moral crisis, and just leave my life. But this was a moral test. And the Republican Party, for the most part, failed. And, and I don't think that that, that goes away. Um, and I think the idea that you have to fundamentally go against these institutions of democracy, I mean, there's not one pillar of our democratic institutions Trump hasn't attacked. Justice Department, the FBI, he, he supports Supreme Court justices that are, you know, more conservative, but he attacks jurors. And he calls a judge from Mexico, from uh, Indiana, a Mexican. Uh, I think that's, that's a deeper uh, degradation of the whole system. Because once, you know, all of this is held together by trust and faith. I mean, why do we stop at midnight on a lonely road at a red light? Because we're a civic society, not because you're gonna get punished. And once we start running through those red lights, where does it stop? And I, to me, that's what leaders are for. So Leaders Anthony gets asked, Anthony gets asked this question all the time, and I'm yeah. sure you get asked it as well. And, and you talked about how you started this book as an exercise in self-reflection about how did we get here and how, you know, what role did I play in allowing the party to get here? How do you answer that question? How do you rationalize your own role as a Republican well, strategist and maybe missing well, my, this resurgence? I'm, I'm way more culpable than Stewart because him and I were on a, uh, a panel in Greenwich. He was yelling at me and I was flying to meet Governor Christie to 
work on the transition. So I'm way more culpable. I want both of you guys to answer that question, you know, relatively briefly. But, you know, if you look at Anthony's Twitter mentions, it's full of people saying, you know, you have no authority to tell me why Donald Trump is bad because you served on his campaign and briefly in his administration. So to to both of you, how do you rationalize your own role in creating the modern GOP or missing this sort of far right element of the party that was maybe louder than you expected? Yeah, I mean, look, um, you know, my book opens with blame me because, you know, there's a a certain genre of books in Washington that say, you know, if only they had listened to me. Well, I can't say that because they did listen to me. And I, I think that we were naive. I was naive. I can only speak for myself. I mean, we saw this dark side. Um, and we never confronted it enough. And we never sort of asked ourselves, what does it mean enough? Um, I was always glad the people I worked for won. And I, I, I was on the side of the party that was mostly fighting those people. But at the same time, I was part of this, this larger thing. And I, I, I think we should have spoken up more. I should have spoken up more. Um, and, and raised more red flags. Uh, would it have mattered? Probably not, but I think all you can do is what you can do. And I, I think if more of us had done that, it would have mattered. Um, so we just, I look at it and I just was naive. I chose to believe, but it was convenient for me to believe that. I mean, I was at the top of a profession. I was doing well in every sense. Um, to, to go to war with that uh, would have been personally costly. And I, I probably just chose to look the other way because it was easier. How about you, Anthony? Well, I'm probably more flawed than Stewart even. I, I, I actually, you know, I was critical of Mr. Trump uh, when I was working for Jeb Bush, uh, who we're going to have on a salt talk on Wednesday, uh, by the way, Stewart, Governor Bush. Fantastic. And, uh, and then I did what a lot of people do, which I wrote about. you critical of them and you're trying to learn to accept him, and then you're cognitively dissonant about what he's doing, and then you end up where John Bolton is, or myself, or General Kelly, or Jim Mattis, or you can name the litany of people where you're like, okay, you know, I, I made a huge mistake, you know. Uh, so it's, for me, it was naivete, and the flaw, and the temptation of wanting to be associated with power, and so I have to always be honest about that, and be accountable about uh, with that. So we have a question from the audience about the electoral system in general. So, and President Obama has expressed his opinion on the Senate, for example, being an undemocratic institution because Before it provides- Before we let Stewart go though, we got to get his opinion on the tax story. You All know, right, I think that's, that's an so audience so, question let, as well. Let, let, let's do that right now. Yep. And then you can ask that question because I, I know we're running out of um, time. So I think we need tax, your opinion on the tax story that's come out. A lot of people are asking. Yeah, I think the tax story is going to really matter because everybody pays taxes. Um, and I think it- uh, in my experience, negative information about a candidate it reinforce, reinforces a pre-existing um, notion about that candidate is much more effective. Um, so I think this is pushing on an open door, as it were. People think that Trump games the system. Um, and I, I think it really goes at the core of his support, which is I'm on your side, I'm one of you, which has always been a fraud. Um, but I, I think it's going to hurt him. Well, well, let me push back for a second, because you and I were involved with Governor Romney's campaign, and everybody set their hair on fire over a 14% millions of dollars of taxes that Governor Romney was was, uh, paying. But he seems to have anesthetized his base or his group of people where he's right. Maybe he can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, and it doesn't matter. So if he pays $750 in taxes 
or no taxes, they don't care. And your response to that is? My response in the electoral sense is right now, if the election were held, Donald Trump would lose. So how does he win? He has to have some of these people who are against him now drift back toward him. And there's reasons to believe that could happen. So I look at something like taxes as like a speed bump. It makes it that much harder for someone who isn't for Trump today to go back in the end, like what happened you know, when Trump did very well those last four days of the campaign in 2016, in part because of the Comey letter, but to just stay where they are now. And that's all, that's all Biden needs. He doesn't need new customers. He just needs to keep the customers he has now. Um, can, can Trump, can Mr. Trump, President Trump threaten the system? Meaning, can he go to the state legislatures and flip the electors, even if he loses the general election and the electoral college vote? Well, you know, I was part of the glorious landslide in 2000 of George Bush, and there was a lot of talk about electors and all that. We're in a different environment now. Um, I think that that ultimate answer is probably not. Um, but, you know, you run the 2000 race, uh, 2016 race 100 times, Trump loses uh, 90. So things unexpected can happen. To me, the real test is the Republican Party. Parties in our system have to form a circuit breaker function. And the, really, the party has to come forward and stop this. It is a destruction of democracy to do that. Um, you just can't allow it to happen. And I think in a larger sense, the best way to avoid it is to crush Trump. I mean, right. if it's 1964, nobody's gonna be sitting up there at midnight we saying, agree. let's we, go to we, the lawyers. We agree. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're doing in the Lincoln Project. Our goal is you know, to do what we can to make sure- Well, Trump I, got, I, got, I got my mug, I got my hat. I just want you to know I've donated money, I've raised money, and- You've been a great supporter. I'll be, I'll be, on, a, I'll be on a Lincoln Project uh, 8 p.m. Uh, live stream, I think, uh, later in the week. Yep. Uh, John Dorsey, I'm going to turn it back to you. I know we'll, we're tight on yeah, time, we'll, but I know you we'll, have that We're last going into overtime here, but we'll squeeze in a couple more questions. The electoral college system and even the Senate has been you know, labeled as undemocratic because of excessive representation it provides to rural voters who are sort of the bedrock of Trump's base. Are those systems, should they be abolished? Are they fair? What is your opinion on that? I would abolish electoral college tomorrow. And I think it would be the best thing that ever happened to the Republican Party because it would force the Republican Party to change. Um, I think minority rule is toxic. So, um, and I say that as someone who benefited from it in 2000 when I worked for Bush. I mean, in Bush campaign, we sort of joked like anybody can get elected president when you get more votes. It takes professionals when you lose by half a million. It seemed kind of funny then. It doesn't seem very funny. <laughs> um, so I, I, I just think um, it's toxic. It's toxic not to have majority rule. And we don't do it in any other aspects of our lives. And you could take a big state like California and you could make the same case for electoral college in California as you do uh, nationally. You know, it's dominated by these large urban areas. Uh, the uh, rural areas are disproportionately not represented. Um, but nobody's saying that. They're saying like the more people, you get more votes, you ought to win. I mean, you know, when you run for Cub Scout leader, you get more votes, you win. I think that's just something we're, and the whole system of the electoral, if you go back to the history of it, it basically was, um, we're gonna elect a bunch of smart people and they're gonna pick the president. And that's just not where we are now. That's not where the country's evolved. So um, I would abolish electoral college. I would leave the Senate alone. I mean, that's just such a profound sort of tinkering. I, I, it's way over right. my head. Um, so you, you but, talked about how you don't know 
if the party is going to change until it becomes an electoral necessity for the party mm -hmm. to change. And I know you're more of a strategist than a forecaster, but if we looked out in five or 10 years, what do you think is sort of the fallout from Trumpism will be for the Republican party? What do you think the Republican party will look like both from a policy and a demographic perspective? I, I think it's sort of like the subprime mortgage crisis. It's easier to predict how it ends and how long it takes. Um, eventually the Republican Party is going to have to change just by survival. It's going to have to. Um, how long that'll take, I don't know. Um, I don't think that just electing someone, uh, nominating someone who's different will, will make much of a difference. I mean, if you look at African-American Republican candidates, they don't tend to do much better with African-Americans than white Republican candidates. Same with Hispanic Republican candidates. So there's not an easy fix here. Um, if I had to predict, I think that we're going to have a period of center-left government. It's going to go too far, and uh, there will be a rational alternative to it that will emerge. But that's going to be one that's not fighting cultural wars. Um, I mean, look at gay marriage. 2008, everybody, every candidate, Democrat and Republican, was against it. Now we don't even talk about it anymore. It's just like over. Um, and I think that that's going to happen with these other cultural issues. Um, you know, where people love immigrants is where they live with immigrants. It's right. where they don't live with immigrants that they're seen as some sort of mysterious negative force. Um, and I think that's a very positive indicator for the country because we're gonna change like that. So eventually there'll be a strong center-right party because there, there's a demand for it in America. I just don't know how long that's gonna take. Well, Stuart, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating conversation. You know, you're somebody who's been in the middle of a lot of these battles within the party for many years. So you have unique insights into how we got here and how we move forward. So thanks so much for joining us. Anthony, you have any final words? Just holding up the book. It was all a lie. Uh, Stuart, great, great book. And uh, New York Times bestseller. I encourage everybody to read it. And uh, I hope to see you on the other side of this, Stuart. And I hope we're part of the future together, like uh, the great Governor Haley Barber said. Wish you the Love best. Love that, brother. Okay, all, all right. the best. God bless. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. Bye -bye. Bye.